Hello and welcome to The Gift of Addiction. My name is Bertie Fagan and my guest today is Dr. Alex Wodak. Dr. Wodak is president of the Australian Drug Law Reform Foundation, whose charter is to encourage a more rational, tolerant and humanitarian approach to the problems created by drugs and drug use in Australia. He was president of the International Harm Reduction Association and he helped establish the first needle syringe program in Australia, the first medically supervised injecting centre when both were pre-legal. Thanks for joining me today, Dr. Wodak. My pleasure. Now, this issue of drug law reform in Australia has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of press lately. It's, it seems to be in the news. And I would like to ask you, firstly, why did you get interested in drug policy? I started working in at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney in the middle of 1982, and soon after I started, uh, a, a survey had been carried out, and it was estimated that somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 men who had sex with men and lived within a close distance of St Vincent's Hospital uh, had become infected with what we now call HIV. Um, so I was startled by this because I assumed that 200, 300, 400 of those 3,000 to 4,000 men who have sex with men would also be people who injected, needle, uh, injected drugs. And they in turn would share their used needles and syringes with other people who use drugs who weren't men who had sex with men, and this would start a cascade of HIV infections that would go on until we had a generalised epidemic. Uh, we ended up having half a dozen or a dozen generalised epidemics around the world that started in that way, so I, I, my concerns weren't misplaced at all. So a group of us got together, uh, including healthcare workers and also people who injected drugs and we started racking our brains to try and identify ways in which we could prevent this from happening. Uh, we were all absolutely united in our strong commitment to keep HIV under control among people who use, who inject drugs and from people who inject drugs. And one of the first things we realised had to be done was to start needle syringe programs as soon as possible in Australia and expand them to scale. And I was looked upon as the person who was going to keep this problem under control in that area. And it was recognised that Eastern Sydney was the national epicentre of HIV. And people said to me, well, you can do whatever you like. Uh, as long as you control HIV infection uh, in that population. Oh, and by the way, you can't have needle syringe programs. And of course, needle syringe programs were not the only thing that was needed, but they were clearly absolutely critical. Um, we resorted to civil disobedience in November 1986, and um, the police investigated the issue and they decided not to prosecute me. And so I knew that uh, New South Wales Cabinet would have to accept needle syringe programs, which they did before the end of 1986. 
then later the next year, I was thinking about all of this and trying to discover why there had been such fierce, relentless opposition to establishing needle and syringe programs, like the opposition we have today to allow pill testing. And it occurred to me that there was only one reason, and that was that people didn't want to jeopardize, even to a small extent, the commitment to drug prohibition. So I started asking myself, what was that policy of drug prohibition? When did we adopt it? Did it work? Were there alternatives that might be better or just as good? I started asking myself those sort of questions in 1987, and I've been asking myself those questions ever since, and that's why we're doing this today. Thank you very much. And so what, what did you find out? What, um, what does Australia do um, in response to the illicit drug question? Well, in theory, we try to reduce the supply of drugs, try to reduce the demand of drugs for drugs, and, and also we try and reduce the harm from drugs. But uh, the majority of the government money spent in response to illicit drugs goes to law enforcement. So customs, police, courts and prisons uh, trying to reduce the supply. And it basically doesn't work. Um, and uh, a small amount of money goes to reduce the demand for drugs and an even tinier amount about 2% of government spending in Australia is spent on harm reduction. And that works brilliantly, but we don't spend enough money on it. And so the problem gets bigger and bigger and uh, people keep on going around in circles, unwilling to accept the fact that uh, the policy basically is seriously flawed. It has never worked, isn't working now, and will never work. I don't know if you know the exact amount of money that is spent uh, in Australia on drug law enforcement, but I've seen figures bandied about that vary from about $1 billion to $1.5 billion annually. Do you, do you know anything more on this? Yes, the, the most recent study we have is um, from the uh, Drug Policy Modelling Program at, at the University of New South Wales, and this was a study based on 2009-10 financial year expenditure and the total expenditure in response to illicit drugs was 1.6 billion dollars and two-thirds of that 66 percent uh, that is 1.1 billion dollars was spent on law enforcement so it's by far and away the biggest item in of government expenditure uh, and trying to identify benefits from that expenditure is a real challenge, but uh, uh, stumbling over the serious adverse consequences, the collateral damage from that expenditure, unfortunately, is all too easy. Today, we had released the uh, Australian Criminal Intelligence, um, what's it called, Committee Council, something, thing um, report uh, on what's happened in. 2017-18 and it's it's yet another story of utter failure of futility um, no doubt people try and do the best they can uh, it to reduce the supply of drugs but the, the the evidence from this report that was released today 
is again a catastrophic failure. If any company in Australia uh, year after year reported such miserable results, they would be forced to uh, declare their bankruptcy. Uh, but because this is a government policy, it gets more and more funding. And Australia's response to the problem caused by illicit drugs is essentially, as you said, to to d- deter use, but also to try and um, suppress the supply of drugs. And can I just um, get a tiny little bit more information from you? Because you, you indicated that it has not worked. Um, ha- ha- why exactly do you say that? Well, uh, let's look at the drug market and then let's look at desirable outcomes. In terms of the drug market, the drug market in Australia, like everywhere else in the world, in the world, uh, has continued to expand. It's grown bigger and bigger. It's grown more and more dangerous. The new drugs that people are using today that they weren't using five or 10 years ago are more dangerous than the drugs that people were using 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, Uh, And we've got poor quality data uh, like everywhere else because when you're trying to measure something that's essentially illicit, it's very hard to have good quality data. But all the data is very consistent. uh, And the drug market is getting bigger and bigger. Production's increasing. Consumption's increasing. uh, Price is dropping. Purity is generally increasing. uh, Availability remains high. Uh, all every parameter that you that we have when we look at the drug market itself uh, is terrible. Um, last year, uh, 2018, uh, there was more than one new psychoactive substance identified for the first time in the European Union. Over 50, there were 55, I think it was 55 new psychoactive substances identified in the European Union. What's driving that is the huge profits that are being made. Uh, the, the turnover of the illicit drug industry, we can't know that exactly, but it's somewhere in the region of 400 to $600 billion a year. It's colossal. Uh, how much profit are people making? Well, again, hard to estimate that. The only, the only estimate I've seen of that came from a, a secret UK a secret report to the UK cabinet in 2003 from their internal strategy unit, uh, later leaked to the Guardian. So that's how come we know about it. And the estimate was that 26 to 58% of turnover of a medium sized opium heroin unit in Afghanistan, 26 to 58% of turnover was profit. And this is uh, companies like Exxon uh, are pleased if they're making seven or eight percent of turnover as profit, and here was twenty six to fifty eight percent profit. So one problem is the drug market keeps on getting bigger and more dangerous. But the second problem is the actual things that we care about, that we cherish, and here I'm talking about death, disease, crime, corruption, oh. violence, and these. Uh, continue to get worse and worse. In 1964 in Australia, we had six heroin overdose deaths, six. And these days we've got 
uh, about 1,800 a year. Uh, the number's gone up and down a little bit, but for the last 20 or 30 years, it's been in that kind of a ballpark. It fell after the heroin shortage in 2000 to about 400, and then it's risen again from 400 to about 1,800. The United States had 72,000 drug overdose deaths in 2017, and last year, 2018, for the third year in a row, the very large number of drug overdose deaths uh, contributed to a shortening of life expectancy for the third year in a row. First time that's happened in a century in the United States. So it's, it's not just a failure, it's a colossal failure. It's a comprehensive failure. And we're spending a lot of money to make a bad problem into an even worse problem. So you, you're referring to the uh, global drug prohibition then as being the, the failure, I, I take it. Is that, is that what you're... The global and also the Australian policy have both failed miserably. And look, I've been saying this, as I just explained, since 1987, I've been saying this publicly. Um, uh, and originally I was very marginalised. There were very few of us in 1987 saying that drug prohibition didn't work. Uh, now it's a mainstream view and we have uh, Mick Palmer, former commissioner of the Australian Federal Police, who says exactly the same. We have, we had uh, former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan saying this. We've got about 30 or 40 former premiers, former uh, presidents, former prime ministers in the Global Commission on Drug Policy saying exactly the same thing. We've got uh, a queue of people uh, in Australia who are serving or retired police commissioners who say much the same thing, perhaps a bit more circumspect than me. Uh, there's no doubt this is a very significant failure. And uh, more and more people are saying that now. We haven't had much of a political shift on it, but that, that will come eventually. What do you think Australia should do, uh, given that the current policies have, have failed? What do you think we should do about illicit drugs instead? Well, the first step is to redefine the issue as primarily a health and social issue, not primarily a law enforcement issue. And that allows us to spend much more money on health and social interventions, which really do help people. So here we that means we could spend much more money on drug treatment, much more money on harm reduction, uh, much more money on prevention. Um, uh, it would mean we could do things like have more medically supervised injecting centres. We could uh, we could have heroin-assisted treatment. Uh, we could have all sorts of things that we can't have at the moment because everything is seen through a law enforcement lens. Second thing we need to do is we need to... Uh, to expand drug treatment specifically uh, and improve the quality so that it's up to the same level as anything else in the healthcare system. At the moment, it's the poor cousin, and it's got to be uh, same quality, same quantity um, as uh, treatment for breast cancer, diabetes, heart disease, anything else. It is a health problem. Um, Third thing we've got to do is we've got to scrap all penalties for 
personal drug use and drug possession. Now, um, other countries have done that. We've done that partly, but we have to do it comprehensively like Portugal's done in 2001, worked well in Portugal. And, and that policy goes side by side with the idea of expanding drug treatment. Uh, fourth thing we need to do, and this is a tough one, uh, is we need to regulate as much of the drug market as we possibly can. We'll never be able to regulate all of the drug market, but we need to regulate as much as we can. Um, uh, we'd start with cannabis, uh, and if that's going well, we then move on to MDMA. And when I say regulate cannabis, I mean tax and regulate it, like alcohol and cigarettes. Uh, we can't tax and regulate all illicit drugs. Um, some um, just not the sort of drugs that we could ever, that the community would ever accept. And frankly, some of the drugs that the community should never accept being taxed and regulated. But we need to find compromised drugs, like methadone is a compromised drug. Um, people in the streets want heroin. Uh, community says you can't have heroin, but you can have methadone. Uh, community is not happy with people getting methadone. Drug users aren't happy with only getting methadone, not heroin. But we can muddle through that. Can, can uh, I question so you on that, Dr. Wodak, just for a second? You, you say that the community will not accept certain drugs, yet you've also said that the attempt to stamp out the supply, the production, supply, distribution has failed. So, uh, therefore, my question would be, if, if we are proposing to regulate some drugs and not others, wouldn't it make sense just to uh, just say, like, we're going we're gonna to do this, we might as well include all the drugs that exist anyway, because they're going to be there uh, no matter what the law, and we, we might as well, if we're going to push for reform in this area, we might as might as well include drugs like heroin and, and ice. Heroin, I think we, we, uh, we could use, but it's a question of how. And I think uh, we have the answer to using heroin from trials in seven countries with over 1,500 people. That's a lot of experience, uh, which are generally positive. And we know that if you're careful about who you select to provide that approach to, uh, you get very good results. And the secret is to restrict that drug to people who've tried all other kinds of treatments, nothing's worked for them, uh, and people who've got very severe heroin-related problems. So you can use heroin, but we certainly would, shouldn't have heroin in pharmacies or heroin in grocery shops. That's, that's not going to work. The community will never stand for it, and I don't think it, it and I think, frankly, it's a recipe for disaster. Uh, will there always be a black market? Sadly, there always will be a black market. We've got a black market for cigarettes at the moment. About 15% of the cigarette market is, is black market, and I don't like it. I don't know anyone who does like it, but um, we can live with it. And if we could, if we could have 85% of the heroin market being a regulated market and 15% being a black market, I could live with that. And I think that's what we'll have to end up doing. It's, it's really ending up with what 
some people have called libertarian paternalism. It sounds like a contradiction, and it is a contradiction. So it's libertarian in the sense you, you try as much as you can to satisfy diverse demands, but it's paternalism in the sense that there are some demands that you simply can't say yes to. I can't imagine that we will ever be in a situation where uh, a community allows people to have crack cocaine, for example. But we may be able to find stimulants that the drug-seeking population is more or less happy with and the community is more or less happy with. The fifth element of this um, scheme that I wanted to put to you is that we do have to try harder to reduce the demand for drugs. And so far, uh, we have just kept on going again and again and again with uh, an approach that clearly doesn't work very well. Benefits are fairly modest and fairly temporary. Um, that is with conventional drug education. So what that means, I think, is that we have to go back to the drawing board and look at ways that we can get young people to have a more optimistic outlook for their future. Uh, it's hard going, growing up in Australia and in many other countries at the moment. Uh, young people are worried about getting a job, worried about having decent health services, worried particularly, of course, as, as we all know about buying a house for themselves. So these, these are legitimate concerns. I think we've got to do a much better job uh, particularly in disadvantaged areas of Australia, at, at encouraging young people to think, I'm going to be okay. Uh, I mightn't have a future living in the fanciest suburb in the country, but I'll, I'll be okay. And at the moment, a lot of young people don't think they're going to be okay. And I'm sure that that feeds into their, uh, you, they're relying on drugs to try and get them through a life which isn't very satisfactory. So they're the five principles I think we need to pursue. Uh, and a lot of people used to recoil at these kinds of suggestions. These days, more and more people are um, coming around to saying, well, let's think about that a bit more. So you touched on jurisdictions like Portugal that have decriminalise drugs and have taken a um, harm reduction approach to, to the issue. Do you, do you know uh, any um, more information coming out of those jurisdictions? Like, has the demand for drugs in, in Portugal fallen? Has, has the crime rate in, related, in, re, um, in relation to um, drugs fallen? Has it been a positive... Um, moved by countries like Portugal? Has, has it worked? Because I know they did it several uh, uh, over a decade ago. Yes, it, it, the, the whole scheme was introduced on July the 1st, 2001 in Portugal uh, after quite a few years of intense discussion in the community and in the, uh, the national parliament. Uh, and uh, several children of some major politicians in Portugal had died from drugs in the late 1990s, and that uh, sparked the whole discussion. And at the time, Portugal was a, a drug policy basket case. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the things that really matter 
uh, like uh, death, disease, crime, corruption, violence. Th those sorts of things tumbled. They fell severely. Uh, so if we look, for example, at overdose deaths, Portugal had one of the worst outcomes in Western Europe at uh, the beginning of the 21st century, and it's now way down the list. Uh, uh, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but the figures are, are really very encouraging. Uh, likewise, HIV infection among people who inject drugs fell dramatically. Um, and uh, the, the number of people who were uh, in prison, serving prison sentences, who were regarded as problematic drug users, that proportion fell dramatically. Uh, so in terms of the uh, outcomes that matter to parents and to members of the community, they all went in the right direction. It's more controversial when you look at measures of drug consumption. Some improved, that is, got less, mm. some didn't. But when you look at the measures that didn't improve, that got worse, drug, in other words, drug consumption increased, uh, well, at the same time in Portugal's neighbours, namely Spain and Italy, consumption also increased and it increased much more. Sure. So uh, it's, um, uh, but there are many measures of drug consumption over that period, 2001 to now, which have improved. They haven't all improved, but there are many that did get less. The other thing is, what about popular opinion and what about government? Well, popular opinion is very supportive of the 2001 national drug reforms in Portugal. Um, 70, 80%, that sort of region. And the uh, politics, they've had several federal elections, national elections in Portugal since 2001, and the government's changed backwards and forwards from the conservatives to the socialists and then back to the conservatives again. And each time the government has more or less kept these drug policies as they were, and the global financial crisis hit Portugal very hard. It's got a weak economy, its government finances are usually in a mess, and so there was widespread uh, savage cutting of government spending after the GFC in 2008-9 in Portugal. Uh, but one area that was virtually left intact was the area we're talking about. Um, people were very happy with the returns that Portugal was getting on its investment in this area. And it was decided by the Portuguese that if they reduced expenditure in those areas, it would blow out costs in other areas. So they, the, the Portuguese decided to keep things as they were. Uh, in the last year or so, uh, a delegation from Norway came to Portugal, looked at it all, and went back to Norway saying, Norway's going to copy what Portugal did. We're not going to go do everything they did, but we're going to do most of the things that Portugal did. So it, the idea is slowly catching on in other countries, and we're seeing more and more countries now around the world that are moving to a much more health and social approach. Switzerland, um, did that in the 1990s. The Netherlands did that way back in the 1970s. And there are uh, a number of other countries around the world that are seriously looking at a much more 
health and social approach. And of course, the idea of taxing and regulating recreational cannabis is really starting to catch on. Uh, Canada uh, changed in October 2018, and now they um, also tax and regulate cannabis. 10 of the 50 states in the United States, plus Washington, D.C., tax and regulate recreational cannabis. And those 10 states account for 20% of the population of the United States. Uh, Uruguay was the first country in the world. Uh, they started slowly in about 2013. Uh, next year, 2020, New Zealand is going to have a national referendum on this issue. And that's sure to spark a debate in Australia on this issue. So do you think that Australia, I mean, I, I know that um, drug law reform in Australia has met a lot of resistance um, so far. Why do you think drug law reform takes so long? It takes long everywhere. It's not just Australia. And also, uh, I think it's fair to say that social policy reform is always very slow. Um, so one famous example is that uh, slavery was began in the United States in the first decade of the 17th century in Virginia and uh, was 150 years in the United States before the first organization established to eliminate slavery from the United States. 150 years. Uh, we're now debating in New South Wales, uh, uh, we're debating about whether or not to uh, end abortion as a crime in New South Wales. All the other states and territories did that long ago. And New Zealand has been, New South Wales has been debating this for, for 40 years. So all social policy reform is slow. Drug policy reform is, is no different. Look at how long it took Australia to uh, accept marriage equality. It took us until 2017. The first decriminalisation of homosexuality in Australia was 1973 in South Australia. So it took from 1973 until 2017. The first decriminalisation of homosexuality in Britain was in 1967. And it wasn't until 2015 that David Cameron, um, as Prime Minister, uh, ensured that, that Britain uh, had uh, marriage equality. So all these reforms are all linked. Um, they're about fairness. Uh, they're also about uh, uh, evidence-based policy. Um, they take a long time. The community needs a long time to think about these things. So it seems like common sense. It seems like a matter of fact that it is, it is heading this way. I just get the impression from you, Dr. Wydak, it just is, the real question is just how long it's actually going to take. Yes, it's a, it's a very important question. Uh, I'm not denying that. Um, but I, I think we can all be encouraged by the fact that all the countries that have moved very cautiously from a very uh, doctrinaire ideological uh, uh, reliance on law enforcement to reduce the supply, all those countries that have carefully moved to a more uh, evidence-based approach, none of them have gone backwards. Uh, they've all kept on and they've They've thought their reforms were really worthwhile. And you can see that Switzerland's a very good example of this. The reforms that, um, 
that uh, the, the then president of Switzerland, Ruth Dreyfus, uh, introduced in the 1990s in Switzerland, are very popular. They haven't been withdrawn in any way. If anything, they're slowly being extended further. So I think we'll see waves of reform separated by periods where the community digests the reforms and evaluates them. And um, I don't think we're going to see revolution. I think we're going to see slow and steady evolution. And it's going to go on for a long time. Well, I personally don't think it can happen soon enough. I really do. I mean, I've, from my um, experience in court as a criminal lawyer, I've seen a lot of people um, marked with criminal records for small amounts of, of drug possessions, which has, you know, seriously affected um, their futures. Uh, I, I just don't think that it serves a place anymore. And I certainly haven't seen any effect on the um, so-called deterrence that the policies are there for the, in the first place. I'll ask you a couple more questions if you have time, Dr. Wodak. I've, I've heard you've become interested in tobacco policy. Can you please explain why? Well, we have 19,000 deaths a year from smoking uh, in Australia. Uh, we, have, we had uh, 100 million deaths from smoking worldwide in the 20th century, and we're going to have, in the rest of the 21st century, 1 billion smoking-related deaths. Two out of every three long-term smokers dies from smoking, a smoking-related cause. Uh, so it's a big problem that there are more deaths from smoking than there are from alcohol plus prescription drugs plus illicit drugs. It's a hell of a big problem. Uh, in 2004, a uh, Chinese pharmacist, Hon Lik, who I met him a few years ago, uh, came up with the idea of an electronic cigarette. Uh, his father had died from lung cancer. His father was a chain smoker. Hon Lik. Uh, was a chain smoker, couldn't stop, and he decided that if he gave himself, invented a machine that would give him nicotine without tars and carbon monoxide, he'd be able to stop. And so he spent years developing an electronic cigarette and then patented one, and then that started being mass-produced 15 years ago. And uh, he's a non-smoker now, by the way. Um, so uh, they're now... 40 million people around the world who uh, are vaping, uh, but only 1% of Australians compared to 6% of people in the United Kingdom. Uh, the United Kingdom, the British government, uh, encourages smokers to switch from smoking to vaping. Uh, Australia uh, puts every barrier we can in front of smokers uh, switching, thinking of switching to vaping. So the maximum fine for possession of nicotine without a prescription is $45,000. And the maximum prison sentence is two years for possessing nicotine uh, without a prescription. Uh, well, 95% or so of people who vape in Australia do so illegally. Uh, and that's why we've got so few people vaping. People don't like breaking the law. Um, and we should make it as easy po as possible for people to go from smoking to vaping. In Sweden, they've had for uh, a long time, probably over a century, they've had something they call snus, very popular among Swedish men. 
uh, not so among Swedish women. And in all other Europe, EU countries apart from Sweden, snus is illegal. It's legal in Sweden. And uh, it's very popular in Sweden. And compared to all men in all other EU countries, Swedish men have the lowest rate of smoking, the lowest rate of smoking-related disease, and the lowest rate of smoking-related death in the whole of the EU. Um, and the difference is huge. So we should be doing that in Australia. Instead, what we're doing is we make it difficult, and as a result, smoking rates in Australia have been virtually flat since 2013, and the decline in smoking rates in the US and UK, where it's easy to, to switch to vaping, uh, the, the decline in smoking rates has accelerated. Um, uh, if we want to reduce uh, lung cancer and other cancers, uh, heart disease and lung disease, we should make it easy for people to switch from smoking to vaping. Crazy. It is crazy and it just seems, it seems almost um, connected to, to the, the reasons why Australia is not um, ready to change in the drug policy. It just, it almost seems like we, we have too much red tape in this country and I don't know if you want to make an opinion on this or not, but I certainly am going to, that I just think that it's uh, crazy that there's way too much red tape and we seem way too slow to change and, and behind really what's happening internationally. Uh, well, I, I'm generally in favour of regulation and I think e-cigarettes, vaping should be regulated. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, but I do have a problem with the fact that we've massively increased the price of cigarettes by increasing cigarette taxation, 25% increase in 2010 and then 12.5% increases in 2013, 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, uh, and there'll be another one on September the 1st this year, and then again, September the 1st in 2020. So these are dramatic increases in the price of cigarettes. Um, and uh, as I said, smoking rate is not going down in Australia. We've got very, uh, very draconian tobacco control policies okay if they'd worked but we don't make it easy for smokers to stop uh, and we sh we should be making it easier for smokers to reduce the harm or to stop by making vaping readily available and we're not um, incidentally the average smoker spends close to ten thousand dollars a year on smoking person who's vaping spends less than a thousand dollars a year so for those low-income people and remember that Incomes in Australia uh, have been almost flat for at least five, maybe 10 years. Um, to increase cigarette prices so savagely when incomes have been relatively flat for five, perhaps 10 years, is really very punitive, very cruel. Uh, and governments should be waking up to themselves. I totally agree. Uh, finally, Dr. Wodak, there's been a lot of press coverage in Australia about people dying, young people dying at music festivals as a result of uh, overdoses, particularly from MDMA. 
what do you think Australia should do to reduce the deaths of, of people from drugs at, at um, music festivals? Look, we, this is really a, a black and white question in my view. Uh, we should be allowing pill testing at these festivals uh, and also we should be allowing uh, drug testing uh, outside uh, these music events as well for a reason I'll come to in a minute. But this should really be part of a harm reduction package. Uh, the idea should be that you uh, people are going to buy their pills and drugs, whatever you and I might think about that, um, and other members of the community might think about that. They manage to buy their pills, and we should be able to have a facility inside the music event where they can have the, the pills tested, and somebody explains to them what the result means in simple terms, terms that they can understand, and also gives them advice about other things they can do to reduce the harm from pills, like don't take other drugs. If you're going to take this one, don't take alcohol and cannabis and X, Y, Z at the same time, just one drug at a time. Uh, don't keep on adding to the dose if it hasn't had an effect. Wait. Um, so simple things like this. Don't, don't dance 70 minutes in every hour. Dance for 50 minutes in an hour and have some time to cool off and drink some cool liquids and go to the air-conditioned tent or room. Uh, so we should be able to give advice like that. Uh, we can't at the moment. We, we have the extraordinary situation in Australia where poor quality, qualitative testing is legal, but high-tech, state-of-the-art testing with experts telling you what the tests mean is illegal in Australia. doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Now, we face a serious uh, potential crisis. hasn't happened here yet. It's happened in North America and parts of Britain with fentanyl, short-acting opioid, uh, which is very dangerous. And people should also be able to see whether their heroin, their opiate is contaminated with fentanyl. And th that's another reason why we should be uh, providing a network of places where uh, uh, drug testing is available outside the music events. This is really so straightforward, it's so simple. Uh, our current policy is so clearly doesn't work. Uh, it's heartbreaking to hear these parents who've lost their own kids uh, begging, beseeching premiers and chief ministers to allow this to happen in Australia. And it's absolute insanity that we're not doing it. We should do it right now. I, I don't know if you heard, but I heard that it was common I think there was a coronial inquest into some of the deaths that resulted from, or there is an ongoing coronial inquest currently uh, into some of the deaths that occurred at the music festivals. And in the case of at least one young fellow who saw this police sniffer dogs, and I believe this is a common occurrence that these people, young people see the sniffer dogs at the music festivals and then get nervous and then take their their whole supply that they're carrying with them in one go and that certainly resulted at least in the death of one person do you have you heard anything about this or what's your opinion are, on the sniffer dogs and the policies there well um there, there are consistent reports uh of the kind of events you've just described happening uh, of course no one's going to have 
photographic evidence or any other evidence to back this up. But the reports are so consistent that I think they're very plausible. Um, and we do have the New South Wales Ombudsman's report from 2006, which was very negative about sniffer dogs, uh, uh, pointed out how often they make serious errors, positive errors, that is saying that drugs are there when they're not there, negative errors, saying the drugs aren't there when they really are there. So we, we have a very inaccurate system, which is quite expensive and causes a lot of collateral damage. Uh, a lot of young people get terrified by this. And I think it's wonderful that we've got a coronial inquest proceeding at the moment on this. I'm confident that inquest will come out with um, very helpful recommendations, practical recommendations. And I just hope that the uh, governments around Australia uh, sit and listen to uh, this experienced, sensible uh, coroner. Uh, we really need that. Um, there's another inquiry going on, as I'm sure you're aware, about ice um, in New South Wales as well. And we have to remember, this is another manifestation of the failure of drug policy. We got ice, clearly a, uh, a significantly more risky drug than, than powder amphetamine. Uh, we got ice because of our drug prohibition policy, our heavy reliance on drug law enforcement. Uh, that's why we got ICE. And there are many, many examples around the world of what's called the iron law of prohibition. Uh, and that is where in a climate of severe oppression, where the customs, police, courts and prisons really sit on the dr illicit drug market system and press down heavily on it, what happens is it encourages more dangerous drugs to replace less dangerous drugs. Uh, this happened um, uh, half a century ago in Asia when opium smoking was banned and it, opium smoking disappeared within a decade in countries where it was banned uh, but it was replaced by heroin injecting which was clearly much more dangerous. Um, again, the, the move from uh, coca leaf to basico uh, or paste as we call them in English um, to to uh, powder cocaine and then to crack cocaine, that whole move was uh, the result of law enforcement pressure. Uh, we have to realize this is a, a policy dead end and we have to look at the kind of five principles that I mentioned before uh, and, and try and work our way out of this. What's sustaining current policy is clearly it works in one area uh, very well, unfortunately, and that is the area of politics. That um, um, bad policy is good politics, and that's why it continues. Um, but it's that's starting to change now, and bad policy is start in this area is starting to become bad politics as well. And parts of the world are changing for that reason, and I'm sure that will happen in Australia as well. Well, Dr. Wodak, thank you so much for joining me today. And I've, I've gained a lot from, from speaking to you and I'm sure I hopefully the listeners have as well. Um, I wish you all the best with your campaign to reform drug law in Australia, because I believe it really does need an overhaul there. It's, it's, it's clearly not working. And I wish you all the best with your endeavours. Thank you very much.
Okay. Good on you. Thank you. Bye for now. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.